Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You know what's interesting about that? um, Every other case, every other Ford case that we've had since, they they have intentionally waited till like deep in their case before they've showed up with any kind of buck. And I think because of the story of how Andy abused them with their own evidence. And now your hosts. Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Please rise. Court is now in session. The podcast you're about to listen to is uh, features Andy Scherfius uh, and Jeff Harris, uh, my law partner, and uh, we used Andy and Jeff as our guinea pigs. And this is actually the first podcast that we recorded. And so while we believe, Yvonne, that it was a great podcast and and very entertaining, uh, at the same time, there were a couple of technical difficulties. And so we just want to warn everybody of that. But uh, it's still a great podcast. Still give it a listen and still listen to these two great trial lawyers. Yeah, that's it. That was good. (laughs) (laughs) Nice input. (laughs) You crushed it. Welcome to the uh, Great Trials podcast, uh, where you hear about real trials from real the real lawyers who try. Uh, this is Steve Lowry, and I'm here with my uh, co-host again, uh, Yvonne Godfrey. And uh, Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. This is we're recording at 9 a.m., which is earlier than I normally like to have conversations. I know. I, I woke up early this morning and have, have had about six cups of coffee, so I'm raring to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, So uh, the case that we have to talk about today, Yvonne, uh, is a case that uh, I've heard about over the years, uh, you've heard about over the years. It's always been a great uh, case to talk about uh, with great stories out of it. And I'm really excited about the two lawyers that we have uh, here with us today to talk about uh, this case of Sasser versus Ford Motor Company. Yeah, I'm really excited. It's a case that I, um, I heard a lot about especially when I first started practicing with our firm and and doing products work and stuff in general Uh, but it's not a case I know a lot about as far as the details go so I'm excited. Yeah it's one of those cases that uh, as I got actually reading some of the information it's a lot more fascinating than even what I thought already and was a lot more complex than what I had uh, initially understood. Um, so the lawyers that we have here today with us, we want to welcome Andy Scherfius from all the way out in Colorado and, uh, and my law partner, Jeff Harris, who's sitting across the table from me. Um, welcome, guys. Glad to be here. Glad to be here, and thank you for the uh, invitation. Yeah, well, um, since uh, we wanted to do a little introduction, so I'll introduce Andy, and then I'm going to uh, let Yvonne take a shot at introducing Jeff. Um, so Andy uh, is a fantastic trial lawyer. He's with uh, Conley Griggs and Parton. And um, Andy probably doesn't remember this at all, but uh, he and I uh, have something in common about where we started out. When I first came to Georgia, uh, I knew not a soul. And uh, the first lawyer that gave me a job was this guy named Joe Freeman, who was sort of this fantastic uh flamboyant, uh, old Southern lawyer, and Andy started at uh, Freeman and Hawkins. And uh, when Joe used to have a question that he want me to figure out the answer to, and I couldn't figure out the answer to, he'd always tell me, hey, why don't you call Andy Scherfius? And, uh, and Andy uh, was always welcoming to this young lawyer who, you know, knew nobody, knew nothing. Uh, and I really have always appreciated that uh, over the years, uh, Andy. But um, Andy has had a fantastic career as a trial lawyer. 
has uh, tried uh, some of the biggest cases in the nation, including uh, was lead counsel on the value jet crash, um, as well as a number of other aviation cases. I think last time I checked, uh, Andy had worked on more than 50 uh, aviation cases, including a, um, uh, a case recently, a Federal Tort Claims Act case uh, that he tried in front of a federal judge and got a great verdict with his, uh, with his partner, Rance Parton. Um, and uh, Andy, uh, welcome and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate those kind words, Steve. I hope I didn't get, you know, sometimes uh, when people call for advice, you're so anxious to give them a answer if they have a question. I hope I didn't mislead you too many times. But um, yes, I do recall that connection back to, to uh, Freeman and Hawkins. That was many years ago. And I really appreciated that opportunity, too. It was where I started practicing law and they were they were very good to me. Joe Freeman, Paul Hawkins and other people. So uh, you're right. It goes back a long time. Yeah. One of the things I always loved about Joe was, uh, you know, he was a big picture guy and uh, could tell a story better than probably anybody else. But when it came down to the, the details, he might not be so clear on all of those. Uh, but uh, he, that's why he relied on his uh, young associates. So, Yvonne, why don't you take a crack at introducing uh, our uh, law partner, mentor, Jeff Harris? <laughs> um. Yeah, so Jeff, I work with Jeff Harris, and uh, he he works here um, at Harris Lowry Manton with Steve and I. And um, he actually gave me my first job practicing, and it only took I think meeting with him twice, and then calling him a bunch of times to get him to finally offer me a job. But um, the pestering was worth it because I've learned so much from him already in in five years, and I've been lucky enough to. Um, go and try cases with him or or watch him try cases more like and um, and he's just fantastic lawyer and and he's my hero um, wow. but wow, it's really getting thick in yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's the funniest person I know except for Steve. Steve <laughs> nice good answer. Steve's the funniest <laughs> and the smartest but <laughs> but Jeff's next. Um, Jeff's been practicing for how long? Uh, when I was looking, I, w I was actually shocked to realize, Andy, that this case was four 14 years ago. Um, so I guess I've been practicing. Yes, I know. It's incredible. Uh, <laughs> long way. A long time. And, and I'm shocked by how much I can't remember. Um, <laughs> and every year that seems to happen more and more where I'm losing more and more. So I'm just glad to be here and try to remember what I can remember about the case. But uh, anyway, the answer to your question, Yvonne, is I think 20 years. 20 years and you got I just learned like five minutes ago you got your MBA before you got your JD I did that was the only way I could get into law school yeah. <laughs> um, and then don't that is not true because in law school you were a super nerd graduated first in your class editor of, of law review I'll stop embarrassing you but I, I can hear Andy chuckling at super nerd because he <laughs> totally agrees with that but. <laughs> Um, anyway, thanks for being here, Jeff. Thanks for coming all the way to uh, the office where you go every day anyway. Well, thanks for, for having me. And um, I mean, this was a fascinating case. And although you described me as uh, your mentor, and I'm, I'm proud to be your mentor, and I hope I've taught you a few things, but but my I always considered Andy Sherfy as my mentor. Um, you know, I, so much of what I do in trial and so much of what I do in court and um, you know, so many of the ways that I think about putting cases together, I learned from Andy and, uh, you know, so I'm looking forward to chatting about this case with you guys. 
And and that and that goes for the good and the bad, Andy. I appreciate those words. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I was going to say, you know, the problem with being a mentor, with being a mentor, number one, it has such an old ring to it. Right. You know, right, right, right. it's like if you hang out long enough, you're going to become a mentor. And then the other problem with being a mentor is it's not always good advice or good examples. <laughs> but anyway, here we are. Well, this case is certainly a, an example of, uh, of a good example. And so I, I um, just want to set the case up a little bit. Uh, back in June of 2000, uh, six-year-old Kelsey Sasser was riding in the backseat of a Lincoln LS. Her mom, Rhonda, was driving and her sister, Alexa, uh, was sitting in the front seat. And uh, they were on their way to vacation Bible school. And um, for one reason or another, uh, Rhonda lost control of the vehicle, went off the side of the road and overcorrected back onto the opposite side of the road and uh, hit a pickup truck head on. Uh, and both Rhonda and Alexa had some pretty significant injuries uh, as far as head injuries and leg injuries. But uh, Kelsey, who was seated in the rear seat, uh, couldn't feel her legs and had a T2 to T4 fracture of her spinal cord and was rendered a paraplegic uh, in this case. And, um, and so this case was a case against Ford Motor Company for the design of their vehicle. And uh, so uh, Andy and Jeff, um, why don't you explain um, a little bit about what the uh, defect was and then we'll talk about, talk about the case. And if I got anything wrong in the facts, just let me know. Jeff, if you'd like to go first, fine, or I'll be glad to just make you, you go ahead. You go ahead, Andy, and I'll follow. Uh, the vehicle involved was a, obviously a Ford product, and as Steve said, and uh, it was a, a Lincoln model that um, at that period of time, Ford was trying to bring Lincoln back into more or less its I don't know how many reincarnations they had tried over the years, but it was basically a Ford that had uh, had a lot of luxury items on it. Uh, key to us is the fact that the back seat of the vehicle had a split seat, and what this would allow is the uh, seat back could be folded down and you'd have access to the trunk. Uh, one conce conceived purpose of that would be to allow long objects such as skis or something like that to be put in the trunk and then extend into the back seat. And um, that that's the, the center product uh, of the case, the, the central issues related to how that seat back, that split seat latched. And uh, at that point, let me, Jeff, come on in. Well, yeah, there was there was a latch that would secure the seat to the back of the vehicle, and and the latch basically didn't work because the leather the the way Ford had designed the seat, it was more interested in having these plush leather seats than actually having a latch that would latch the seat into place. And what most people don't understand is that the seat is actually part of the restraint system. So in order for the seat belt to work, the seat has to remain in the position that it's designed to stay in. And so when the latch doesn't latch and the seat is allowed to flop down, what happened in this case was it changed the geometry or the angle of the seat belt. And when the seat collapsed forward, the seat belt rode down the side of the, the seat and, and created sort of a fulcrum 
um, in the area where the fracture took place. So ultimately it boiled down to the fact that Ford had a defective latch that didn't allow the seat to properly lock into place, which made the seat belt not work like it ought to. So that's, in, that's one thing I didn't understand about this case. So the actual injury was caused by the seat belt and not because the seat back had uh, broken her back, just put her in the wrong position. Well, it was a combination because she had a, um, if I'm remembering correctly, Andy, she had a hyperextension injury to her thoracic spine, which means there had to be some force vector from the back and there had to be something that she could fulcrum over in the front. So the force vector from the back was the seat back collapsing and the fulcrum point in the front at the thoracic level where her spine was injured was the belt itself that had locked into place. And uh, Jeff, you used a term that not all of our listeners may know, force vector. What is that? It's actually redundant because I think vector is force, but but, <laughs> but so, some kind of force mechanism from Sounds like something from, a from Star Wars. Yeah, well, I'm wearing a t-shirt that says force vector. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so, you know, one of the things that I didn't understand uh, how important was in this case until I started reading some of your transcripts, and I want you all to talk about is that there was a pretty big dispute uh, between your side, the, the plaintiff side and Ford about where Kelsey was actually sitting, uh, whether she was sitting in the back seat or in the front seat. And um, I, I always knew that was an issue, but I didn't realize that there was pretty compelling evidence, at least from my read, Apparently that, she not. Was, right, exactly, <laughs> that she was sitting in the, in the front seat, which uh, it, it, from what I took from it was that the accident report had her listed in the front seat, the, um, and both Rhonda and Alexa, the sister, had both at one point said early on that Kelsey was sitting in the front seat, and when she was found at the scene, she was in the front footwell, right? Is that or she was somewhere up, up in the front seat area. That's correct. I mean, those, uh, it, it, that version uh, did, did, uh, was original. And uh, I think a lot of it was the result of uh, Kelsey having been found in the footwell um, or in the front seat passenger side um, after the accident. And so from that, of course, in the confusion of the events immediately following the wreck, um, the story that she was in the front seat started. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked. No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, 
mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Yeah, and, and, and one of the, probably the, I guess what started that more than anything else is that the Alexa was the uh, older child and she was sitting in the right front passenger seat. Kelsey was sitting in the rear center uh, seat where the seat back collapsed. But when, when the accident happens, Alexa gets out of the car and her father, uh, the parents were divorced and her father shows up at the scene. I think if I'm remembering this correctly, and she, she tells a fib, she lies to her dad and says, I was in the back seat because her dad didn't like either one of the girls riding in the front seat. So that's what sort of starts the whole story and, you know, kind of get, I mean, that coupled with the fact that, that Kelsey's actually found in the front seat, but you know, what the, when, when we dug into the case and we really started to peel the layers back and interview everybody and really figure out what happened, what, what happened was Kelsey right after the accident, the seat collapses and she's crawling to her mother. I mean, she's trying to get to her mother's lap and, you know, that's ultimately what we were able to prove. But, but I think the whole, the, the, the seating position problem or angle started with Alexa telling her dad something that turned out not to be true. And so we spent a good bit of time unraveling an 11 year old's fib to her father. Well, and, and I think ultimately from the way I understand it is it seemed like it worked out pretty well as far as uh, how the case got tried that uh, the jury had to either decide was Kelsey in the back or was she in the front? And if she's in the back, then plaintiffs win, Ford loses. And if she's in the front, then, you know, Ford wins, plaintiff loses. And it was essentially that binary choice, one or the other. Would you mind talking about how you all handled that a little bit? You know, we, we recognized early that, the, uh, that this was obviously a critical issue in the case. And Ford had, had given us the opportunity at, at a uh, black-white question, uh, which a lot of times in product liability cases doesn't happen. And uh, so we were able to focus on that issue uh, as, to, as to the seating in the car and uh, work at it. And you're absolutely right that it creates a situation where if you can argue and I think argue with a lot of intellectual honesty that that if the jury finds Kelsey in the front seat, uh, obviously we lose because it would have nothing to do with the seat back in the back seat. Um, however, if the jury concluded from all the evidence that the child Kelsey was in the back seat at the time of impact, then uh, that that creates an entirely different scenario for us. So, so it was really a, a defense choice that gave us the opportunity. And I think you have to look at those things in product cases as an opportunity. As I said, uh, many product cases and other kinds of complex cases don't have that black and white question in them many times. So Andy, I was talking to Steve about this case and he had told me that, that before Kelsey got on the stand at trial, she had never been asked or, or had talked about whether um, sh whether she had never said whether she was sitting in the front seat or the back seat up until she was basically on the stand. Is that true? That's correct. 
It's a benefit of trying cases with Andy. You jump out of an airplane, and then you hope the chute's going to come over. <laughs> hey, Andy, I want to hear your decision-making. Well, no. Say that takes guts. Well, if uh, to use Jeff's analogy, it's more like and wondering if you remembered to bring the chute. <laughs> right. But, um, it, you know, and in, in any event, this child was uh, very young at the time of the uh, – she was injured and very young at trial, had been through an amazing amount of uh, trauma and recovery and therapy. And, and for some reason, these questions had never been put to her directly. Uh, you know, it had always been through her mother or through her older sister or witnesses or something. Uh, but yes, when we put her on the stand, to my knowledge, that's the first time she was asked directly, where were you seated in the vehicle? If she had answered, I was in the front seat, we could have all just folded up our briefcases and shook hands and gone home. <laughs> but uh, she clearly, with, without question, uh, without hesitation, said she was seated in the back seat. Yeah, and I, I remember that vividly when, when she, you know, when Andy asked her that. I think it was Andy. It might have been Tammy. Um, that, uh, you know, she didn't hesitate one bit. And, you know, when you look at the transcript and you look at, and it goes back to Steve's point about, well, you know, there was this raging factual fight about where she was. There wasn't any doubt in our mind. I think our trial team, we didn't have any doubt at all where she was. I mean, it was, it was just, it wasn't a question. I mean, we, we viewed the whole defense as being just a mountain of bullshit that, uh, you know, was not supported by what happened. So, Although it seems when you read the dry transcript that it was this very risky thing to do. I, I don't, I don't think that, I mean, maybe Andy views it differently, but I, I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as there's no question where the child was. I mean, it wasn't something that, you know, I mean, obviously we would have all been shocked if she said we, <laughs> I was in the front seat, but I mean, I, I didn't really have, you know, much, much fear of that because we all knew full well from the forensic evidence and from, you know, once we deconstructed everything from what Alexa was saying and what Rhonda was ultimately saying, that that was exactly where everybody was because they had a story. And that was part of the deal is that, you know, the girls switched seating positions every week and, you know, they would fight like siblings about who got to sit in the front seat next to mom. And, you know, it was, uh, it was Kelsey's week to be in the back. Still, I mean, as hard as these cases are to try and how expensive they are to try. I mean, when you ask that question, you got to be holding your breath just a little bit. Well, you're holding something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the pro yeah, yeah exactly. The problem is not that the child or that the law, excuse me, that the lawyers don't know or are convinced of a um, seating arrangement and a particular uh, sequence of events. And that's Jeff's absolutely correct. We we were convinced we were correct. We probably would not have been uh, at trial on the case. But um, you never know from the mouths of children, you know, mm -hmm. what's going to come out. Yeah. And there had been confusion from the very beginning about this involving Alexa, her father, uh, you know, just all the circumstances of where she was found and everything. And that's where the risk was. It was not uh, what the lawyers thought. It was what the child may say. <laughs> so uh, anyway, right. I, you know, you just ask the question. 
Right. Well, that's why I was surprised because when Steve told me that, I was like, I feel like if we showed up at trial and, and <laughs> I was getting, you know, a witness ready and maybe it's different with, with children. Cause I've never prepped it, prepped a witness who's a kid. I feel like if I didn't ask that question, <laughs> you'd have been like, you're fired. Well, I mean, on a related topic, I, I think that one of the dumbest things that Ford did was when they cross examined Alexa, um, you know, they, they kind of stepped in it in reverse because Alexa, who was 11, as I recall, I think just totally decimated the lawyer who was cross-examining her because I think by the time Alexa was done testifying, nobody had any doubt that, that the kids were sitting, uh, that Alexa was in the front, Kelsey was in the back. Because if you think about it, I mean, it would have had to have been a fairly elaborate conspiracy between the mother, a six-year-old, and an 11-year-old to to lie over a period of years um, and keep their lie together, which is impossible. And it just goes back to what Andy said. I mean, think about, you know, trying to convince children to come up with this lie and to stick with it forever. So, you know, that, I think, I mean, Alexa did a great job and, and I'm sure the, the defense lawyer is probably still smarting from that cross. Right. One thing I was hoping would come up was the, the was Alexa because uh, she was she was a um, what you know what lawyers would call just a star witness and uh, again when a child speaks like Alexa spoke at trial it's hard to overcome for a defense lawyer who who is counting on certain things being said to to reinforce or really to buttress a, uh, a defense that was so major to their case and it didn't happen with Alexa. They didn't get that. In fact, they came off uh, looking ridiculous. <laughs> well, actually, when 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 the defense lawyer was cross-examined, well, actually, when the lawyer was done cross-examining Alexa, I remember Andy leaning over and whispering to me, "That was an ass whipping." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of those my cousin Vinny moments when uh, no more questions for <laughs> yeah. you. Um, Andy, uh, one of the things that I noticed that seemed like it helped you out as far as the seating position and just, uh, you know, undermining Ford's defense was uh, that Ford had come up with some testing on how um, Kelsey's injury had occurred in the front seat. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? Um, you know, I, I, would, I would rather uh, Jeff address that directly, but, you know, as I remember, Ford had spent an incredible amount of time, energy, and money to to come up with an accident uh, sequence in, with her in the uh, front seat. And um, Jeff, probably being a lot younger than I, probably recalls <laughs> more details of that. But uh, So I'll let him try to address it. Well, it goes back to this whole force vector thing. So, so Kelsey's got an injury to her spine, and it's a, the kind of injury that can only occur if something hits her in the back. And so if she's in the front seat, Ford's got a real problem. It's got to come up with some kind of force that hits the child in the back. And if you're sitting in the front seat and you're in a frontal impact, it's kind of hard to come up with something. So they, they basically have to rule out – they have to get her in the front seat and figure out how to get her injured in the back. So they come up with this – crazy theory that that basically Kelsey is for some reason and they never were able to explain what it was but I think they said well maybe she was reaching down picking up something off the floorboard 
right at the moment of impact. And so their theory was that the airbag deploys over Kelsey's back and hits her in the middle of her back, which was just, I mean, it's just ridiculous is really what it is. So, um, and that was, when you take those things together, when you take the fact that, that Ford is sort of all in on this front seat defense, and then factually you can disprove that with the testimony of the, of the family, and then you add together that they can't really come up with some mechanism of injury that makes any sense if she is in the front seat, other than this crazy airbag theory. Um, I think that was one of the one of the reasons why we were we were able to be successful because the jury was looking at that and going, well, wait a minute, that's just that's absurd. Yeah, and for our podcast listeners, we'll put on the website notes that the uh, the pictures of some of the testing um, that was done, so you can see you know basically how uh, ridiculous it looked. Yeah, I, well, Steve just touched on it. I was going to say they had, they they did extensive testing, and I mean extensive, and they had film and they had uh, uh, still photos. They had the whole shoot and bang and engineers and everything else. But that really worked to our benefit. Thank goodness they did have all of it because, and you know, close study of it just showed how ridiculous that the whole theory was. But uh, they stuck with it. Well, and and one of the re- one of the things I remember from this trial again very vividly is the morning that their biomechanic was testifying. Andy shows up with this twenty five pound weight plate, or was it 40, 45 pounds? It was a big weight plate that he's stolen from the gym. And I look at the thing and I was like, "What the hell is he going to be doing with that?" <laughs> and so, so what the Ford. Um, <laughs> what the Ford expert was trying to argue is, okay, we've got our theory about how she's injured with this airbag, but the plaintiff's theory doesn't make any sense because there's not enough force in the seat because the seat doesn't weigh enough when it comes forward and fulcrums or hits her in the back. There's not enough weight to cause the injury. That was their argument. So on cross, Andy pulls out this metal weight and says to the expert, who's an older guy, he's like, well, why don't you lay down on the ground and let me drop this on your back? Because <laughs> it's essentially the same amount of weight. And the guy gets all wide-eyed. He's like, no, no, I don't want that. And at that moment in time, with, with that kind of cross-examination question, um, the entire Ford biomechanical defense was gone. I mean, it was, it was just a, it's just a great question and a great way to cross-examine somebody and, you know, I think at that moment in time, the jury was just like, wait a minute, all this stuff we've been hearing about, there's not enough weight, there's not enough force. You know, he's right. I mean, at the end of the day, if you drop this weight on his back, and this guy doesn't want it. He's pretty much admitted that there was enough force. But anyway, I remember that distinctly. <laughs> it's just one of those things that I don't even know how that entered my head other than the fact I go to the gym most mornings and struggle around with these weights. <laughs> and it dawned on me that the back seat uh, weighed the same thing, created, you know, had the same potential uh, forces involved as a 45-pound weight. So I did. I stole it from the gym and brought it and didn't tell anybody what I was going to do because I knew nobody would agree on my team that, you know, we should try such a thing. So I just did it. And uh, the experts, um, the biomechanical experts' reactions were, I mean, just could not have been more perfect for the plaintiff. It was a kind of a panic no. And I said, you know, you, you say this back seat would 
traveling so many inches at, at, uh, and weighing so many pounds, but create the forces necessary to break her back uh, and cause these injuries. And uh, I said, well, just, you know, come down here in front of the jury and I want you to lean over and I'm going to drop this weight on your back from the number of inches that you claim the back would have to travel. And uh, he literally kind of panicked in front of the jury. So some of these things work out. Mm-hmm. And I, and that to me is a, brings up a couple of points first, there's so many cross examinations that people do that are so hyper technical that are just not effective. And I think what Andy did there was, was effective because, you know, it, it illustrated a, uh, a physics point in a, in an approachable way that the jury could get. Um, and, and it was succinct. And, and, um, and the second point is that, you know, sometimes when you cross examine witnesses, you got to take some risk and, you know, he, he didn't know what the guy was going to do, but the, but there really weren't two, there was really only two scenarios. He was either going to let him drop it on his back, which would have been awesome. <laughs> or he was going to refuse, which was even better. So, somehow I feel like if you're wheeling out the defense expert on a gurney because he just broke his back, <laughs> maybe there might be a mistrial, but uh, I, I love that. I love that question. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, so one of the things about this case and, and product liability cases in general is that they are so hard to work up from getting the discovery and just building the case and the evidence that you can get of, you know, the defect and, and of the uh, manufacturer's knowledge of that defect. Can you guys address, Jeff, I know you did a lot of the discovery in this case, uh, you know, what sort of how you, you know, push the discovery and then how you're able to form the evidence of, you know, other complaints and then, you know, their own internal memos talking about their knowledge of the problems with the rear latch. Well, the, the case went on for... Jeff, before you start, let me, let, me, let me just say, can I just say one thing before you start? Sure. Uh, I, I want to em- emphasize that Jeff did most of the critical discovery in the case. I went to lots of depositions and things like that, obviously, but he... Uh, did an unbelievable job on what what we all know to be the guts of a products liability case against a major manufacturer that is as hard to deal with as, as Ford Motor Company. And um, uh, just before he starts on some of that, I just want to make sure that everyone understands the credit he is due on the discovery that he did. Well, I, I appreciate that, Andy. The, the, I don't know, you may not remember this part of it, but, um, and you probably do, but the case went on for a long, long time with, with really no documents that were useful. I mean, we, we filed motions to compel and we, we sent a bunch of discovery and the case rocked along. And I remember at one point thinking, well, we just, you know, we're in trouble here because we don't have any evidence that, Ford was having any problems with this latch. And then we get a call um, deep, deep into the case. I mean, I I don't remember exactly how close it was to trial, but we get a call from one of the local lawyers and they, you know, if I remember right, he comes over and meets with Andy and I were sitting in the office and it turns out that there are two bankers boxes of documents that really should have been produced about two years before that, outline in excruciating detail that Ford had had a bunch of problems with this exact latch. They'd done this extensive internal investigation. They had 
literally thousands of cars that were affected. Um, they knew all about it. There were all these engineers trying to figure out how to fix it. And there's just all this very specific evidence about this defect that had been hidden for years. Um, and then when that finally broke, uh, we were able to get really crucial documents that we were able to use to cross-examine some of the four witnesses. But, um, you know, we just kept plot, sort of plotting away at discovery until we finally got what we needed. But we, the other crucial fact is we had a great judge I and mean, we had a judge who was willing to drop the hammer and who was willing to put to Ford's feet to the fire. Otherwise I don't think we would have ever gotten that box that those two boxes of documents. And I think if we hadn't gotten those two boxes of documents, we would have had a much tougher time convincing the jury that this was a well-known problem. Where did y'all, um, I, did I miss it in the beginning where the case was tried, who your, who your judge was? It was Fulton County, which is uh, Atlanta, and it was Jerry Baxter. Um, yeah, and then, and, and then you were able to take those documents. From what I read, uh, there's a, you know, even some of Ford's engineers uh, who we've come to know pretty well over the years uh, from the design analysis group, you know, usually when you depose those guys or have them at trial, they won't give anything away. But even some of those guys had written memos to the file talking about um, the problems getting this rear seat to latch. And I think even one of the engineers had said, you know, his own car that he was driving, he couldn't get the seat to latch. And so that it had to be some of the documents that you, when you found them, thought were gold. Well, yeah, a lot of, in, in many of these cases, you'll take a, a corporate representative witness who's a professional witness who, you know, is trained to be evasive and difficult to pin down. And we were able to take a lot of these key internal documents and depose Ford engineers that weren't professional witnesses who made the, from their perspective, colossal blunder of telling the truth. And, um, you know, I remember several of the engineers being sort of shockingly honest about the fact that they were having all these problems and, um, you know, so that, that really helped. But, uh, and that, that goes back to the whole, when you're, when you're putting these cases together, a lot of times it's better to try to get, uh, actual engineers involved in making the product and don't let the defendant force you into taking the deposition of a trained testifier. I agree so much with all the points made. It's just, it's, it's, it's so important to try to get around or, or through or into the company with the people who are really dealing with these problems. And um, the engineers themselves, the people on the line responsible, in this case particularly, for the memos and the like were uh, amazingly open about uh, what they had done and what the problems were and why they reported it the way they did and things. Yeah, and just as a quick general point for people who listen to the podcast who don't have a, um, a legal background, you can, you can ask for depositions of specific people that you identify from documents or whatever that, that worked at Ford. And then you, but you can also, uh, for a corporate um, defendant, you can ask for a corporate, for the corporation to designate somebody to come to a deposition and testify about certain topics. And when you do the deposition for certain topics, called a 30B6, or I guess sometimes a 30B5. Uh, sometimes <laughs> I they call the it difference. a PMK, the person most knowledgeable. Okay. Then you're going to get usually the you pro, the, right? 
Right. Then you typically get the person least knowledgeable <laughs> who is designated by the defendant. But so if you, if you say to the corporation, produce a witness to talk about all the problems that you've got with this vehicle, they get to pick the witness that they want to produce. And invariably the witness that they produce is a, is someone who's a professional testifier who's very difficult to get a straight answer from. So that it goes back to what Andy was saying. What you really want to do is you want to get the people who actually are involved in designing um, the product or fixing the problem, not the not the person that's designated by the corporation. But there's a big fight about that because you know companies uh, lately, in a lot of these cases that we've had, the company is taking the position you know that well the only th the only corporate person you can depose is the, the corporate representative. And they refuse to identify the engineers involved, and it's it's done on purpose to evade and you know um, conceal to me what the what the problem is with the product. Well, right, and and you know some of the things that we do in our in our trials nowadays, which I think you all did in this trial, is try to front load the evidence with um, just cross examinations of corporate representatives or engineers who are all talking about the problems with the product so that when the jury hears, uh, you know, and as a procedural point in Georgia, um, when you are putting up the plaintiff's case and you are uh, talking to a defense witness, then you, the plaintiff gets to go and the defense has to wait to, uh, to question that witness. It's really discretionary to the judge, but most times the defense has to wait. So what the jury ends up hearing is a bunch of engineer after engineer after engineer all admitting that there are problems with their product. Were you all able to do that in this case with the uh, other incidents? Yes, I, th I think we did. Um, uh, you know, and that was exactly the strategy, trying to front load uh, the problems with the product, to get, it, get it out there before, you know, the defense even has an opportunity to present any of their case. So uh, it, and we had some good evidence, and it was worth doing. And uh, I think I think it helped us greatly. Um, number of other things they did. They they had, we we thought we had a good buck, you know, a good uh, <laughs> uh, cutaway of the vehicle and all those problems. They showed up at trial with one of the most beautiful bucks I've ever seen. And so we, in front of the juries, said, you know. Theirs is a lot better than ours with their resources, and um, we just kind of rolled ours into a back room and used theirs. <laughs> and uh, uh, I mean, things like that. It, it, it. I still remembered. It was a, it was a great, uh, you know, great buck. No, no question about it. And Andy, that brings up another one of my favorite points. For everybody who doesn't know, a buck is essentially a part of the car. So in this case, it was the rear seat uh, of the car um, that you could actually bring into the courtroom and test. But my understanding, uh, Andy, when you were cross-examining a lot of Ford's engineers and experts, was that you would challenge them to tell you whether or not the rear seat was latched or not, and uh, not knowing what they would answer it. <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, in looking at the back seat, it's evident that you cannot tell if the seat is latched or not because the if the back of the seat is in the vertical position, it covers the, the latching mechanism, and they had no warning there, which was another point we were trying to make, that 
uh, even a you know a red flag button or something like that uh, would 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 at least give the occupant or in this case Rhonda someone opportunity to know that the seat was not latched and um, short of that you really could not tell so when their experts would take the stand and all these engineers and they'd blather on about this and that and whatever and the vehicle was and the simple question to them was well what is that look at your buck over there is the seat latched or not and uh amazingly every one of them and there were, i forgot how many jeff but there were several of them every single one of them missed it <laughs> and um uh, you know <laughs> It's those moments in a trial when uh, you, you wonder when your luck's going to run out, and in this case, it never did. Um, but even even when they would get off the stand, the first one, of course, tried to tell from the stand because he, he knew everything, and he missed it. And then um, uh, the rest of them would say, well, I, I can't tell from here. And we'd say, well, come on down and get, get a little closer, and they'd get close, and take a guess and be wrong. So, uh, you know, it's yeah, those kind of are. things that, uh, this episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. They, they regretted mightily bringing that buck into the courtroom by the end of the trial. And, I, and, and at the end of the trial, that buck was whisked out of there so quickly that, uh, I mean, I think it was glowing. It was on, they were pushing it so quickly, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, Andy did a great job just harassing them every day with their own buck. And when they brought it in, they had it with this big tarp. It was this big shroud and they were so proud of the thing <laughs> and they unveil it. And then they unveil this masterful buck that they have that they think is going to be a huge part of their case. And it ended up being probably one of the worst witnesses against them, <laughs> their, their own evidence. We were so afraid they would take it away and not bring it back that we uh, had Judge ba Baxter direct them to leave it in the courtroom. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about that, um, Every other case, every other Ford case that we've had since, they I, they have intentionally waited till like deep in their case before they've showed up with any kind of buck. And I think because of the story of how Andy abused them with their own evidence, 
you know, wasn't lost on them. Well, and that's what I was going to say. The two things, the first products trial I ever did with you, the two things that I didn't really expect, that was the first trial I'd ever even seen, um, was number one, I didn't know, this is what goes back to what Steve was saying earlier, that you could call, you could call uh, somebody who, you know, was going to represent the defendant on on cross on cross that you could do your cross examination without somebody doing a direct first i thought that was um just really cool and something that a lot of people might not know that you can do lawyers might know but it's not something you see on tv or you really understand um but the other thing i learned from that first trial was how much jeff likes to use other people's demonstratives yeah well, i stole that from andy because <laughs> i saw how well it worked <laughs> Well, and I'm sure I picked it up or stole it from Paul Hawkins or Joe Freeman or someone along the line, you know, 40, 40 something years ago. But, uh, yeah, and another thing that, you know, it sounds like all these people are showing up at trial. That's not the case, and in, in particularly today. Um, a lot of them that we call for cross-examination and in our case were about video. And so that goes back to Jeff having done such a great job in preparing the case um, and getting it ready. Many times there would be discovery depositions taken that were not necessarily admissible at trial for certain purposes. And then with that in hand, Jeff or uh, others, but mostly Jeff, would go, go back and redepose the guy for use at trial. And uh, that's that's a very very effective, and then you can take that video and show all or part of it or whatever. And of course, the defendant can use it too. But that's how some of these witnesses came when we say came to trial or were presented in our case for cross examination or something. They're on videotape. They never would bring them. I mean, you uh, most of them are in Michigan or you know somewhere like that, and uh, you would never be able to get them to trial. What what makes on a related note, what makes products cases so different from other types of cases is the you know, if you have a lot of cases you can go out and find the evidence yourself or you can, you know, interview neutral witnesses and put those neutral witnesses up. But in a products case, if the product is defective, the manufacturer of the product is really the only entity that has all the evidence. I mean, they know what their internal testing is. They know what their internal standards are. They know whether they're having problems and all that stuff is not publicly available. So really the only way to prove a product's case and to prove that they knew it was defective and that they were having problems is you have to get their documents and you have to cross examine their people and establish that they knew that they had a problem. So that's the reason in a product's case, you typically do what we did, which is call their witnesses on cross and use their documents against them. And if you do it the right way, uh, like this case is a good example. The, the jury was able to see they had so many problems with this vehicle, and that puts into context why they're so desperate to get Kelsey out of the back seat. Because they got all these problems with the back seats. They know all about it. They've known about it for years. And they haven't done anything about it. Well, what's, what's the magic way to just wave their corporate wand and fix the problem? And that's just move her out of the back seat. So you, know, you put those things together. They, they knew they had a problem in the back seat, and their defense was so ridiculous. Uh, I think that's the reason why the jury was able to say, well, wait a minute. You know, you're, you're fixating on this story that's convenient for you, which is 
that she's not in the back seat. And then they can say, well, yeah, we've got problems. We got problems with our back seats. And yeah, there are you know, thousands of them that are defective, but it doesn't matter in this case because she wasn't back there. Right. Yeah. And that sort of um, <clears throat> goes to the point that I've always found interesting in products cases. And I know it was the same in this case, which is that in, in products is, you know, everybody has to get experts involved on both sides. But products is really the only type of litigation that I'm aware of where the people who testify on the plaintiff side only testify on the plaintiff side. And then the people who testify on the defense side only testify on the defense side. And if you ever cross over, then you're never going to hear from them again. Can you talk a little bit about how the experts did in trial and you know what the, whether they were effective or not? Well, you know, that's such a, a difficult thing to assess the effectiveness of someone while the case is going on. Uh, and, and you just have to have this feeling about it really as to, as to whether or not an expert has been successful. In product cases particularly, and, uh, and I will also add in aviation cases, there's a plaintiff side expert and there is a defense side expert. And particularly if, if you work for someone like Ford Motor Company, you are not going to cross over the line uh, unless it is in some totally unrelated kind of case that could not possibly uh, come back on them. But uh, I personally thought in this trial that the defense experts were pretty ineffective, basically because they had such a long history with uh, mostly Ford Motor Company or a Ford Motor Company and other auto manufacturers. And I'll give you one example. I hope to make it quick. Um, uh, one of their experts, and I believe he is from Salt Lake City area, uh, we got into him pretty hard on how much money he had made over the years with Ford Motor Company. And uh, uh, Judge Baxter, you know, had to rule on that uh, pre-trial and during trial as to the admissibility, the discoverability and the admissibility of it. He allowed us to do it. But in that case, he, um, the expert had a bill in this case, in the Sasser case, that was not astoundingly high. Uh, and of course, none of them had sent their final bill. I always say, well, that was through two months ago when I sent my last bill, you know. But in any event, it was not amazingly high. However, over the years, he had, he alone, just he had billed Ford Motor Company something like, was it, Jeff, was it like $6 million? I remember in closing, we referred to him as the $6 million man. Uh, $6 million, that didn't include anybody else in his firm, really. And uh, things like that are not only effective for the plaintiff with jurors, um, they're hurtful to the defense. And um, that, that that's just one example I can think of. I'm sure Jeff can can add to that. Yeah. And, and juries aren't stupid. And they realize that if a guy's made $6 million from Ford Motor Company, what's the likelihood that that same guy's going to come in and say anything remotely negative? Or what's the likelihood that that witness is going to be objective and, you know, fair and scientifically principled? And the likelihood is zero. It's actually 6 million times zero. But, uh, um, you know, that's the that's what happens over and over again in these cases is you have this uh, group of experts hired by the defendants paid millions and millions of dollars and they come in and a lot of times say the exact same thing in every case 
notwithstanding what the actual facts are. And I think the juries pick, pick up on that pretty quickly. And um, so, I, you know, I agree with Andy. I, I felt like their experts were pretty weak in this case. They, were also, they also had a, a major problem in that they were struggling against the internal documents. And you see that in these cases, too, where you have this expert who's brought in, paid a bunch of money, and he's got to try to explain away why all these rank and file engineers who show up every day and work are writing down in memos that they're having all these problems. And that, that causes a huge hit on their credibility as well. Yeah, I noticed from reading the transcripts that one of the things when you guys were making a point over um, the fact that there was no warning that the seat was not latched, that, that they said, well, there is a warning because it squeaks and rattles as you drive down the road. Well, it's a Ford. So like trying to discern which squeak and rattle from a Ford motor vehicle uh, is, uh, is warning you of danger. I think that'd be difficult. <laughs> right, right. So, Andy, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I saw uh, that you developed as a theme in the case was using the scientific method. Can you talk a little bit about your, your thoughts there and how you were able to use that in this trial? Well, actually, it's uh, something I picked up years and years ago, again, from days probably at the beginning of Freeman and Hawkins and or shortly thereafter. And um, it, the argument is we're as plaintiffs, we are simply presenting the evidence in, a, as a, in keeping with the scientific method, and uh, we challenge the defendant to do the same thing. And uh, we, we would think that if, if the defendant would agree to try their case on the scientific, using the scientific method of analysis of the facts and evidence, that we'd all come to the same point. And that is, we would all come to the point of knowing that the product was defective. Um, and it's, it, it's just a, a technique to organize the case and to keep it in mind. And, and you know, we would bring it up, both Jeff and I would bring it up um, with experts and the like to uh, emphasize that we wanted them to testify. Did they know what the scientific method was? And would they agree to testify using the scientific method and then uh, go from there? Because, of course, they didn't. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it, it's a real useful argument to help structure the argument, not only for the jury, so they can expect a certain things to be said and done, but, frankly, for case preparation and presentation. Yeah. And so we had really four categories of evidence. So we had the documentary evidence, the forensic evidence, the markings on the vehicle, that there was a area on the side of the seat that was kind of burnished or um, it was, it was distressed leather where you could tell where the seatbelt rode down. Then you had the, the medical evidence, the, the injury to her back. And um, what did I say? I think I missed one. But anyway, if you break those, Oh, I'm sorry, the factual evidence. So if you take those four pieces and, and our whole approach was we went on all four of these, uh, we, the documentary evidence Ford can't deny its own internal documents. The forensic evidence clearly showed that the seat fell the way that we described it. The, um, factual evidence other than this anomaly where Alexa says one thing to her father. And there was also a, a random witness who, who said that Kelsey was in the back seat. 
And, you know, but there were all these other fact witnesses who said the exact opposite. So he was kind of an outlier. But if you look at that and then you look at um, all of those categories of evidence, we were able to say to the jury, we went on every one of these. If you look at it objectively and fairly and you don't have an extra paid expert come in and tell you to ignore it all. So that was the way that, as Andy was describing, we, we sort of gave the jury categories of evidence and then we we tried to win in each category and make it clear to the jury that we won in each category. And I, I thought it was particularly effective or would be particularly effective because, you know, not only could you say that you applied the scientific method to the injury happening in the back seat, but that if you tried to apply the scientific method to the injury occurring in the front seat, it just nothing supported it. Yeah. You end up with this crazy theory that the airbag deploys over her head and hits her in the back. So, um, and, and we also had the treating pediatric neurosurgeon who, who described her mechanism of injury and that was much more, um, uh, on our side. So you had this neutral treating doctor, our biomechanical people. And so the mechanism of injury was a huge problem for them from the scientific method standpoint, because they, they just couldn't come up with a theory that would cause this child to be injured in the way that she was injured if she wasn't in the back seat. I'm glad Jeff mentioned the pediatric neurosurgeon because he, uh, this a little bit of just trial preparation and, and tactics here, if I, if I may. Um, you know, we all assume that it's very difficult, and most of the time it is, to get treating physicians to a trial, particularly if they're out of town and um, there's always confusion about trial dates and when are you going to be here and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, he was in Birmingham, and we made an effort of two or three trips over there. Uh, actually, that kind of fell to me. And uh, he first gave a deposition. First, we had a meeting. Then he gave a deposition. Then I went back and and just flat asked him uh, if he would come to trial. And to my surprise and pleasure, he uh, just immediately said yes he would he would need a little notice and he came to trial and that guy was you know he's not a trained testifying expert and he certainly was uh he he, he was maybe one of the best witnesses i've ever seen on this on the stand i totally he had agree. all the appropriate demonstrative evidence with him. he was uh he was outstanding and uh the jury was just enraptured with him i don't know another word when he would come down in front of the jury there was not a person on the in the box that didn't have both eyes on him. it was uh and so my point is those things are so important to a trial that they're worth whatever effort you can put out till you just get a flat note um but he readily appeared yeah, I, I, I totally agree with Andy. I think he was one of the best witnesses. And sometimes I think juries with retained experts just say, you know, they got theirs, you know, the plaintiff has theirs, and they just kind of let them negate each other. Um, but if you can bring in someone independent and unbiased like a treating physician, I think the jury oftentimes gives them a lot more credit than the retained experts. But uh, but this guy was was phenomenal. And I think it was largely because Andy spent so much time working with him and, and he was, uh, you know, he cared about the case cause this was his patient and he, he, he wanted to do the right thing. And I, you know, looking back on his testimony, I think he, uh, 
probably did a better job than any of the retained biomechanical experts at explaining the mechanism of injury. And it didn't, didn't hurt that he had this extensive experience in biomechanics, which a lot of times you don't have with a neurosurgeon. Yeah, and that's so true about witnesses who come in who are who are unbiased. That um, you know, even what all the experts say, even the plaintiffs' experts, that um, you have a guy, a doctor like that, uh, who has no dog in the fight. Um, you know, juries are going to um, are going to listen to and believe, um, and they're more credible than both sides. So I want to turn a little bit to the the damages in this case and talk about how you proved up the damages. the The verdict, and I should have said this at the beginning, was. Uh, almost $48 million, $47,700,000, I believe $30 million of that was in compensatories and then followed up by a, approximately $17 million in punitives, um, punitive damages. Um, can you talk a little bit, um, Andy, about uh, putting together this case from the damages to really let the jury see how this had affected Kel Kelsey and what effect this was going to have on her for the rest of her life? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. And so many of these things are, <laughs> I hate to say it, or maybe a, from a historical perspective, again, that makes me sound like I've been around forever. Maybe I have. But um, when I first started practicing law, working up damages was not given the consideration in any way that it is today. Uh, and usually working up damages consisted in the beginning uh, of my law practice of having an easel or a, a, you know, a flip chart or something and a magic marker and, and calculating up some numbers in front of the jury is almost, I, I hate to put it this way, almost an afterthought in the case, you know, all the energy went into proving liability. And over the years, lawyers have gotten so much better about preparing cases all along in connection with damages. And you have to have that focus from the very beginning of the case if you're going to do such things as day-in-the-life films, uh, if, if you're going to have a well-advised life care planner, if you're going to have the best economist you can get. Um, all that has to go hand-in-hand hand with hand and glove with, with uh, the other side of the case, which is, you know, proving up liability. It's, it's not one more important than the other. Uh, and so in this case, to really get the true numbers in front of a jury, you're, you're going to have to have uh, a life care planner who has been closely associated with the injured party of the family and witnesses and things like that. And then you're going to have to have an economist who can bring home the enormity of these numbers over time. Uh, it's very difficult to get people to think you know, 20 years from now that this uh, eight-year-old is going to have to have the kind of care that she is going to have to have. And so, um, and what is that going to cost 20 years from now? So uh, in this case, we we spent as much time, I, I would venture to say, on damage witnesses as we did on liability witnesses in many respects. And then the one not to overlook uh, are the lay witnesses um, in terms of, of the damages that, that this child had. Uh, and then lastly, the pediatric neurosurgeon. I mean, really, the guy who treated her and continued to treat her really brought all of this home in terms of, of the, what it's going to be like for her through a lifetime 
Um, but I guess my point is just to emphasize the importance of focused on that. And as I said, lawyers have got so much better and are so much more experienced in this regard than, than when I started practicing law. Jeff? Yeah, I think the probably the hardest case to put forward to a jury on damages is a spinal cord case because the, the jury doesn't understand how a spinal cord injury affects all aspects of a person's life and will affect all aspects of their life for the rest of their lives. And a lot of times if they get appropriate care, their life expectancy is that of a normal person. So um, having w expert witnesses who can come in and explain what it's going to mean to a young child when she has to use a wheelchair for 30 years, how that's going to affect, you know, other parts of her body, how it's going to affect her shoulders, how she's going to develop, you know, arthritis. That's just one example. Or the fact that if she doesn't have an appropriate wheelchair, it causes other problems, wheelchair causes other problems like ulcers. So you really have to be sort of methodical and have really good experts to walk the jury through how devastating a spinal cord injury like the one that Kelsey suffered is and how it's going to require so many different types of medical care in the future. And you rely, like Andy was saying, you rely heavily on a life care planner to explain what kind of need she's going to have her treating physicians to explain how this injury is going to affect her in the future an economist to evaluate, to value all these things. And you gotta, you gotta, cause you have a huge responsibility you know, at the end of the day, you, you've got this huge responsibility to explain to the jury what kind of care someone's going to need so that they understand why what sounds like a huge number in reality isn't because of, of the amount of um, extraordinary need that Kelsey was going to have. Yeah. And I happen to know who you use as your life care planner and we've used her in a number of cases since then. And she's one of my favorite witnesses to put up. Uh, and just to watch her on cross-examination by the defense when they try to find something on her plan. I've never seen uh, somebody handle a lawyer's questions uh, so well. Many times a defense lawyer will come up and try and cross-examine her and then um, end up adding value to the case. So I, um, I know that you happen to have a great expert in that case. Uh, can you all talk a little bit about, uh, so in phase two, you tried the punitive damages try, uh, part of the case, and you were able to get a, um, I think, 17 to 17 and a half million dollar verdict. Can you talk a little bit about the punitive damages aspect of it? Um, I think one thing to, to keep in mind is that uh, we, we operated in Georgia under a statute where a substantial percentage of the punitive damage award goes to the state. And that was, we were one of the first cases in which that actually was put into play. And um, I, I guess I'm reaching more toward appellate issues that followed than I am at trial. Uh, and, and so that was, that was an interesting little dynamic going on all the time with the state attorney general's office very interested in what we were doing, but not really knowing, you know, how to treat us and vice versa. Uh, and, you know, punitive damages are, are really, for me, I'll just readily uh, state, uh, hard to prove or hard to think of the appropriate argument. It has to be in the case context. And, uh, 
I'll let Jeff carry it from there. Well, the, I, I think the key to punitive damages awards um, always boils down to foreseeability. If the jury's going to award punitive damages, it, it does so only because it believes that the defendant knew something bad was going to happen, had plenty of warning that something bad was going to happen, and had the ability to keep whatever that bad thing that happened uh, from happening. So, and that's exactly what happened here. That there are all these complaints. One of the defendants, one of the defense arguments is, well, nobody else has been injured by a so in a similar way, um, which I thought was a pretty lousy argument because it was just a matter of time before somebody else was injured because they knew that there were all these cars out there that had defective latches. So I think we were able to tell the jury that in this case, Ford knew full well that this thing was defective, didn't do anything about it, and that this little girl was injured because of that. In terms of the number we were dealing with at the time, there was a little bit, there was a little bit more fluidity in the law about what the ratio of punitive damages to compensatory damages had to be. There were some cases that were suggesting that it, you know it had to be one to one or three to one. So we were very we were very cognizant of that and worried about not having a punitive damages award that was constitutionally suspect given the kind of fluid state of the law. So that was one of the concerns we had about what numbers to ask for. Um, and then the other thing which came out in the evidence was how much it would cost to fix the problem. And, um, and it wasn't much, I don't recall off the top of my head, but it was a, a matter of, you know, a few cents per vehicle to fix whatever this was and to keep it from uh, happening. So, um, one of the, and this is pretty typical in punitive damages arguments, you know, you, you try to ground the award to, uh, what the defendant saved by not making something safe and to, you know, take that away from them. Um, and, and I, that was one of the arguments we made at the end of the day, I, you know, I felt like, and I, know, I think Andy did too, that the punitive damages award was, was a, a solid and appropriate number and one that the you know, the jury was wise to come up with. One of the big problems with products cases is I think lawyers sometimes go hog wild and ask for massive punitive damages awards. And what that ends up doing is getting your case reversed. And then you get to crow about the fact that you got a billion dollar punitive damages award. Your case gets re reversed and then your poor client who needs medical care doesn't have an award. So it's sort of a cautionary tale. Be careful in punitive damages cases, not to uh, get yourself a giant verdict that's going to suddenly attract the attention of the appellate courts to the detriment of your client. You and Steve and the rest of your firm kind of have always had my philosophy in these cases is, is that um, where do you think we got uh, it? From? Every move you make, or oh, well, <laughs> well, you didn't get it all from me. I assure you, you got you guys have too much talent to be emanating me in every way. But in, in any event, um, I, I I believe strongly in the uh, trying to put together the case and trying the case to win it on appeal, and um, not to get hung out there, you know, on all these um, trying new theories or trying. Of course, you always you want to try new stuff, but uh, you know, with the idea that that if you win this case, it will be appealed. And that, that is so true in most product cases. And well, so you, you have to keep it in the frontal lobe 
Yeah, and if you want to see Jeff, Jeff and Andy did win on appeal. Um, and if you, for lawyers or people who have access to Westlaw, if you want to check it out, the um, the appellate opinion, the Westlaw citation is two seventy four Georgia Appeals four fifty nine two thousand five. The law nerds out there. Well, Andy and Jeff, we really appreciate your time. This has been a fascinating case to listen to, and I, I love hearing the, uh, the strategies, and it's been a really enjoyable discussion, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thanks for having us. Thank, thank you to both of you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.